0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Last week, President Joe Biden made history when he signed the highly anticipated and hotly contested $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill into law. The American Rescue Plan, as it's called, passed along party lines by Congress sends direct $1,400 checks to a lot of Americans, and it extends federal unemployment benefits through the end of summer. Other measures in the stimulus are also making news, like the expansion to the child tax credit and the $350 billion in federal aid allocated to state and local governments. Think about the $10 billion that is on its way, for instance, to the state of Michigan. This measure is unprecedented in its size and in its scope, and it has been heralded as an important marker in shifting how we as a nation address and think about poverty. After years of political austerity and cutting budgets to make them balance, some people are saying this relief bill could mark the beginning of a new era of big government. So what does the stimulus bill mean for the future health of our economy? Is this American Rescue Plan a precursor to other progressive economic policies that we will see unfold under the Biden administration? And what does this all mean for you and your family? Today, we are going to talk with an expert on the subject. Paul Krugman is a Nobel laureate. He's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, where he covers macroeconomics, trade, healthcare, social policy, and politics. He's also the author of more than 20 books, including Arguing with Zombies, which is now available in paperback. Paul Krugman, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi there. Good morning. It's great to have you here with us in Detroit. Um, I want to start with the American Rescue Plan, which uh, passed last week. As I said in the open, it is dispensing $1.5 trillion in government aid to the public. What struck you most about this piece of legislation?
1: Well,
2: the first thing is that it is actually big enough to do the job, which, given our experience from the – um. The beginning of the Obama administration is a really welcome contrast. Back in 2009, people like me were tearing our hair out, saying this is an inadequate-sized plan; uh, it will fall short. And then people, instead of saying we need more, uh, the political system will respond by saying, "Well, that didn't work, so no more, no more of that." And this time around, we really have a, a plan that is. Uh, is big enough to probably produce a very very strong economy over the next year and then do a lot of other good stuff uh further down the road.
0: So uh, a lot of the people who are talking poorly or negatively about uh, this legislation um say that it's that it's too big that uh, you know you've thrown the kitchen sink in here to try to appease you know political constituencies uh Republicans say that there are uh, goodies in here for for liberals and 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 Democrats that don't belong uh, in a stimulus bill. Uh, talk about why you don't think uh, that's a legitimate criticism
2: okay, this is not exactly a stimulus bill. I mean there's a lot of stimulative effect from it, uh, but it's not designed if if your idea if your goal was to get us back to full employment while spending as little money as possible this is not the bill you would have written. There are large parts of it that are um, probably doing some good stuff, but not necessarily that much bang for the buck in terms of employment. So if that's your complaint, if you, if you insisted that this was supposed to be purely about uh, giving the economy a short-term lift, then this is not the bill you would have wanted to see. Uh, my view of course is that that's okay. It, it is in fact, it looks like it's a, about big enough to just about get us to full employment, mm-hmm. maybe even a little bit run a little bit hot, but that's okay if, if for a while too uh, but then there's a bunch of other things that it's doing so if you consider um, you know children a special interest group, uh, then the substantial amount of money for child tax credits uh, is something that you're going to say, well why is that in a in this bill but of course it's it's a good thing to be doing on its own. It, if you consider uh, making uh, uh, health care more affordable through enhanced uh, uh, Obamacare subsidies uh, again if if people who are having trouble paying for health care are a special interest group well yeah they did get some goodies so there there's there's no question that there's a lot of liberal policy uh, progressive policy that's embodied in this that isn't closely tied to GDP growth over the next year but you know that's who said that that's what the only thing you should be doing in this legislation?
0: Yeah. So so, and I guess following along that tack then, what is the argument for this approach versus what I suspect Republicans would rather do, which would be to to go back at the, the tax code and and give Americans relief that way? I mean, that's kind of the central tension in our politics right now about Uh, the economy, that uh, one side says, look, if you just get uh, tax burdens and regulations off people's backs, the economy will do fine and uh, all boats will lift uh, with with that tide. Uh, The other side says that you've got to have government spend money to invest in things that give people opportunity and and chances. Uh, And that, yeah, it, it causes debt, but uh, but the effect of it, of course, is to expand the economy by uh, expanding participation in it. Uh, talk about the tension between those two sides, and which side has the advantage from your point of view?
2: Well, I would argue that even in a perfectly normal uh, economic slump, even if even in, in you know ordinary bad times, if there's such a thing, uh, the tax cut approach just doesn't work. Very well, it doesn't we you know we had a big it wasn't with bad times. we had a big tax cut in 2017 mm-hmm. uh, of which the core was a, a big cut in corporate taxes that was supposed to lead to a surge in business investment and to raise wages, and that none of that happened so it it just it's a strategy that of you know cutting taxes as is supposed to be the universal cure for everything, and it keeps on not actually working. Uh, But if you take a look at where where we are now, this has been an especially um, an an economic uh, as well as health disaster that is especially unsuited for tax cuts as your medicine of choice uh, because it's been, as people say, it's a K-shaped recovery. Some people have been doing pretty well. That's the upper leg of the K. Mm -hmm. But many people have been doing very badly because they're in jobs that have been wiped out. least temporarily by the pandemic it's just been an extremely uneven um, situation which those who are worst off to begin with are also the people who bore the brunt of the of the negative effects of everything that's happened Uh, and those are people that cutting taxes doesn't reach them um, or barely reaches them i mean we at least the federal tax system is it's not as progressive as it should be but it's Uh, at the top uh, then there are income taxes being paid by people who are earning minimum wage and yet the people who really need relief are the people who are actually either earning minimum wage or in fact because they're jobless are not earning anything at all so there was no way to help the people who really really needed help except by spending money not simply by by cutting somebody's taxes. Mm. So this was if ever there was a, a, a slump that, that required that the government go out there and give people money. This was it.
0: So, so, Republicans, of course, also would point to the the amount of debt this adds uh, to to our to our economy. Of course, they don't necessarily point the same thing out when, for instance, tax cuts, as you pointed out in twenty seventeen, the the huge tax cut, the Trump tax cut. Uh, didn't inspire as much economic activity as uh, as it was anticipated to, and it it also added a lot of debt. But uh, but but there's no question here that that uh, this is borrowing. This is borrowing on a on a massive scale. Should we be worried about uh, about uh, doing that?
2: No, we really shouldn't. And it, it you need to look not just at the you know, the debt number. Can sound really scary. Of course, basically any the U.S. economy is so big that any number sounds scary. So, uh, but if you actually try to think about what is the burden, what kind of burden is this debt going to impose on future budgets? The answer is it's going to be incredibly small because interest rates are so low, or the borrowing costs are uh, they're up some. We've seen a, a rise in interest rates because of economic optimism, because the people who, uh, in the bond market think that this. Stimulus is going to help the economy, but even so, the interest rates are extremely low. a lot of us like to look at at real interest rates, interest rates on, on bonds that are protected from inflation. The real interest rate on U.S. long-term borrowing is negative. It's it's minus point six percent. In effect, people are willing to lend money um, to the U.S. government that will be worth less when they get repaid than it's worth now, and under those circumstances the fact that we're running up a uh, even though it's a couple of trillion dollars in in additional debt is just not something that is going to cause a, a lot of trouble for us further down the road
0: hmm. Hmm. i'm talking with paul krugman nobel laureate op-ed columnist for the new york times where he covers macroeconomics trade healthcare social policy and politics he's also the author of more than 20 books, including Arguing with Zombies, which is now available in paperback. We're talking about the COVID relief bill uh, right now. We're going to talk about a number of things uh, with uh, Mr. Krugman this this hour, including a recent column he wrote uh, in which he argued that American capitalism is giving us too many choices for our own good. That's a really uh, interesting argument that we'll get to in the B segment today. Uh, Meanwhile, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, Let us know what you think of the COVID-19 relief bill. Uh, How is this stimulus uh, having an effect on you and your family? Do you have any concerns about the legislation or about the amount of money uh, that's involved? Um, What do you think of the exclusion of the $15 minimum wage from uh, the American Rescue Plan, something that uh, the House of Representatives had in its plan, but that could not get through uh, in in the Senate. Uh, as always, uh, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, also, just give us a call if you've got a, a question for Paul Krugman. How often is it here on Detroit today, that we have a Nobel laureate with us uh, to, to to aid the conversation, uh, Paul. Before we get to listeners, I want to talk about the this, the, the the big picture uh, of of this uh, this package that that came out of Congress last week and the focus on uh, anti poverty efforts, which has begun to get a lot of uh, attention. Uh, this is another this is another kind of uh, tension in our in our political narrative in this country the idea that government can relieve poverty and that government has an obligation to use its powers and resources to alleviate poverty um that it's something we've tried to do for a, a really long time and fits and starts uh, this does seem to be a return to uh, a more earnest uh, a more earnest effort I wonder what you make of the chances here and and the strategy. Is it the right way to do what they want to do, and will will it achieve what uh, what everybody seems to want, which is uh, fewer Americans living in poverty?
2: Oh yeah, there's no question that we're going to see a substantial drop in poverty, just as a direct result. I mean, if you give people more money, they they uh, they will uh, be less poor, and uh, in particular to give families with children more money they, the fewer of them will be in poverty and it's a reasonably certain number that uh, we're going to cut child poverty roughly in half which is pretty damn impressive that's a, i mean uh, that's a huge
0: deal. thing to even to even fathom but but you're yeah. saying that that you think we can achieve it
2: that's almost that's almost a lock there it's really hard to see how that doesn't happen hmm. Given the money that's being allocated now, it's not permanent. Uh, so unless that those child tax credits are are renewed, this is a, a temporary achievement. But probably it does become permanent because the benefits would be so obvious. Um, I think the thing that you know a lot of things have changed is, since the past. I mean, we did have a a war on poverty uh, that began under Lyndon Johnson and that was regard the, widely regarded as a failure, um, and. There were a variety of reasons for that, and some of it was actually bad numbers. The actual benefits were obscured by the statistics, some of it was that other things were going wrong. Mm -hmm. We had a a disappearance of urban jobs, which kind of largely offset whatever money was being thrown. But all of that is far in the past now, and we know a lot more now. the, The constant worry on the right side of the political spectrum is that giving people money will cause them to be lazy, to stop working. Uh, But we have a lot of evidence from programs here, programs abroad, careful study of what happened as uh, past anti-poverty programs were rolled out across the country, all of which says that those concerns are hugely exaggerated, that we're not going to see a mass outbreak of laziness as a result. We're just going to see that a lot of people are a lot less poor.
0: And, you know, we had a, a caller yesterday who talked about the idea that quote unquote, giving people things for free, uh, uh, encourages uh, a lack of productivity and hurts the economy. This is a a narrative we hear a lot from the right. Is that the right way to even look at what's going on in this bill, the idea of, quote unquote, giving people things for free? I don't see a lot of that in here.
2: No, I mean, it's it's certainly we're giving $3,000 per child, uh, to families with children. Mm-hmm. That, that, so that is certainly giving people something for free. But it's a, one of the actually great things about this is that it's not conditional. It's not, we'll give you 3000 unless you can make enough money uh, to, to working at the supermarket, so that you don't need it. It's it's you just get the money, mm-hmm. which means that there isn't a really strong disincentive effect. There's no reason for people not to work, um, except you know some people, uh, a few people might choose to work fewer hours so they can spend more time raising their children. But that's kind of a good thing, not a bad thing, right? And the um, the the kinds of incentive effects that that some past poverty programs have had. Uh, which comes out of the fear that we might be giving people too much, and therefore we need to claw back the money, if at all possible. Uh, the, those those were a mistake. Uh, it's always been a question how important they were, but in any case, that's not that's not in this. This is this is just we're going to give people money that will help them raise their kids, and um, it's hard to see a, a major downside in any of this. So yeah. the the whole I mean the whole notion that poverty is happens because the poor don't have enough incentive to, to make themselves better off, that's always been you know, morally dubious and intellectually pretty pretty poorly uh, based. But in any case, this bill doesn't cause those problems.
0: Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Paul Krugman of The New York Times and we will get to your calls. Mike and Chesterfield, Jeff and Livonia, you are up first. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter. We'll try to work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest this hour is Paul Krugman, a Nobel laureate and op-ed columnist for The New York Times. We're talking uh, right now about the COVID relief bill and its effect on our economy, both in the short term and in the long term. Uh, we're going to talk about a number of other things as well this hour. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call, 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. Still want to hear how folks are taking in uh, the passage of the America American Rescue Plan last week. Uh, are you getting already uh, the $1,400 that uh, is part of this bill? Uh, are there other provisions that uh, you expect to make things a little easier for you? Uh, also, give us a call. Let us know what you think of all the money that is flowing uh, to state and local governments, $10 billion on tap to come here uh, to the state of Michigan. Uh, that's a huge, huge boost to, to a lot of different uh, areas. Think of what we're getting here in the, in the city of Detroit, uh, a lot of money and, and resources that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Mike in Chesterfield. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Steve. Uh, Stephen, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing fine. I have uh, a few gripes
1: with uh, first recruitment on this stuff. Um, So I come from working in many different levels of government. And from what I've come to see, I think that when you look at something like the the package that was passed, as well as many ones in the past, uh, such as the uh, CARES Act and the uh, American Recovery Act of 2009, that the federal government spends a massive amount of money spread across a bunch of different areas and does very little for long-term investment in those areas Hmm. and one of the problems that it runs into is everyone's always thinking in the short term it's how you stimulate the economy in one regard or another but you spend a massive amount of money, adding to the debt, which will add to, uh, which will increase the interest going on the payment for the deficit, while you're not getting anything for it. You look at massive uh, spending from the past in the, from the federal government, like in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase, or. during uh, during the 60s with the Apollo program or the Manhattan Project or the interstate highway system, every time there was a massive amount of government spending, there was definitely an investment in the society. Mm. But now we look at the trillions that get spent today, and it's more or less maintaining the status quo. There's no investment for the future. There's no long-term thought process in all of this. And so we increase our deficits and debt. With no long-term outlook in repairing
0: those, yeah, uh, Mike, that's a really interesting. It's a really interesting way to see it. I'm not sure I agree. Uh, uh, I, I, and and I, I guess I would say before we get to uh, uh, to Paul Krugman's uh, answer, I would say that I think investing in people as you know capital uh, and and in their lives and opportunity. Uh, is similar to uh, investing in highways or investing in space exploration or or expansion um but but uh Paul Krugman uh answer answer Mike's criticism here
2: uh first thing just about the burden of the death. um you know yes it's it's a lot of money but if you really want to think about uh, you know are we are we are we blowing it are we are we using up uh to use the jargon and, and are we using up our fiscal space? The answer is no, but there's still plenty of room to do stuff. Uh, uh, One interesting statistic right now, federal interest payments as a share of total federal expenditure is half what it was during the Reagan years, even though the the debt numbers look big because the interest rates are so low. So it's it's not as if this is our last chance to do something. It's also true, as you just said, that the um, spending, certainly on children, is a is a form of investment there's a lot of it sort of sounds it's obvious and in fact there's there's a lot of st- uh statistical evidence to the effect that that aiding families with children um pays off in those children being healthier more productive adults when they grow up so mm-hmm. so that's a form of investment but the main thing to say here is that yeah this is a short-term response to an incredible economic crisis um, and it's not the end of the story, and everybody associated with the Biden administration knows that. This is this is Bill Number One. This is the it's called the, arrest, the American Rescue Plan. It's it's there to to deal with this immediate crisis that we face. Um, there will be a uh, a large public investment invest in the future uh, bill coming down the pike uh, some a few months from now. It's um, they felt they needed to do this first because it needed to move fast, uh, and they needed—you know—they barely—they right, got zero Republican votes, so it was—it was passed with the, with the narrowest possible margin. Um, and uh, the, we'll, we'll see what comes next. But no, nobody that is involved in any of this is, is of the belief that that just taking care of stuff. Uh, sustaining family incomes while the pandemic is raging mm-hmm. is the end of the story. That's uh, we, we need massive investments in infrastructure, massive investments in children, uh, massive investments in R and D because technology is going to be a part of it. Uh, all of that is you know TBA. It's uh, it's it's down the pike. So no, it's not. It's not short-termism. This is it's a bit of political calculus. Yeah, I mean, it, it, part of the point is that by doing stuff that is going to immediately improve a lot of people's lives, you hopefully accumulate some political capital that will make it easier to get to the next the next phase through.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I you, you mentioned there the pandemic and the disruption that the pandemic uh, has caused. I, I, I wonder if, um, if there are issues or policy proposals that have come up because of the pandemic that you think need to be sort of folded into the idea of these kind of permanent economic solutions.
2: Well, I think what we've seen mostly from the pandemic is is that um, insecurity uh, it is not something that, that this pandemic the the economic impacts fell much more heavily on lower income Americans, but it wasn't a straightforward uh, that just if you were a low earner you were hurt. It mm-hmm. depended a lot just on what particular kind of job you had, where you were. It's uh, it's it's kind of a, a if you like it it was a a, a message telling us that we're all. Uh, exposed and that we all kind of to some extent need to be our brother's keepers that we need to be prepared to to provide a a safety net for for everyone so it, it yeah I mean it, it there were some pretty highly paid people in let's say the airline industry who suddenly found that their livelihood had disappeared so sure. it wasn't just that if you were affluent you were safe and on the other hand you know this so uh, this it it's telling us that the the case for a safety net is not simply one of, of of redistribution of of making the rich a little bit less rich and the poor substantially less poor. It's really it's it's about uh, making sure that there's a there are there's some basic assurance of being able to maintain a decent life no matter who you are.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got a question on Twitter from Carl. He says the uh, last time Congress included a provision to protect the stimulus checks from garnishment. The Senate took that out this time. Should Congress pass a standalone bill uh, to fix that, which I think would probably be hard because the Senate did take it out. But uh, what about that issue?
2: Um, the answer is actually I haven't thought it through. I think probably you should. Just uh, I'm not quite sure it was taken out. It might have been there was, I mean, all of this stuff has been weirdly hobbled by these arcane rules of procedure. That's yeah. the reason that we didn't get the minimum wage hike. So, um, the um, so I don't know. I mean, it's
0: it could have uh, been reconciliation uh, that took to, that took that out. Yeah, for
2: instance. yeah. yeah it, it, so there were just uh, stuff that. Stuff that you can bypass the filibuster and stuff that you can't, and so um, so I don't uh, I don't really know the answer there. I, would, I, I certainly does seem wrong yeah. in the middle of all of this to be saying, oh, and by the way, uh, we're snatching back that money because we we think you might owe some back taxes.
0: Right, right. Uh, let's go to Jeff in Livonia. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi.
2: Hey. Um, hi, Dr. Krugman. Uh, glad to uh, to hear you on the air here. Uh, love your columns. Uh, my comment is uh, I think there's a, a lot of people that are using the terms stimulus and relief interchangeably. Hmm. And I think you made a, a point in one of your columns that what we really needed was a relief bill for people that have really been hurt and not necessarily a stimulus bill.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting yeah. distinction, uh, Jeff. Thanks for the call. Uh, uh, Paul, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I, I, I very much agree. Uh, that is a point I've tried to make. I'm I'm largely giving up because people keep on calling it stimulus even when it <laughs> it isn't. I mean there is there is a stimulus there's stimulus involved in it, but that's not the main point. I mean the main reason that the economy was depressed for most of the past year was not that people weren't willing to spend because they were feeling poor or because they were you know the, the main reason the economy was depressed was that because people didn't dare spend because uh, uh, because it was either Uh, legally banned, or in any case, extremely unwise to go have an indoor restaurant meal. And um, so uh, a lot of what we've been doing is just sustaining people, sustaining people, sustaining businesses, sustaining state and local governments through a period of when the economy was experiencing basically a natural disaster. Now, that said, there is a, you know. we are handing out a lot of money, and so there will be a stimulus element to it as well. Um, and but all of it clearly, um, it's this is time limited. If if things continue to go as well as they seem to be under the vaccination program, then by the end of this year, uh, stimulus won't be really what we need. It will be a, a question of uh, now how do we how do we make the economy. Grow mm-hmm. uh, in an equitable way looking forward, but mm-hmm. yeah, this was um and particularly yeah it if if it was purely stimulus, then we could have done with a bill that was substantially smaller than this, but it was a lot more than that,
0: yeah uh, I also wonder, I mean, you're somebody who's watched this this political tug of war. Uh, in Washington for a long time over over you know individual bills like this one but also over the 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 kind of larger narrative about how government interacts with the economy uh, it, it seems though that that we are in a different kind of space than we have been before uh, when it comes to how entrenched the two political sides are and And this idea that uh, that it's almost impossible to get anything done unless you have complete control uh, of government yeah. you know both houses and the white and the White House how likely do you think it is uh, that the Biden administration will get to these other things that you're that you're talking about um, and, and if they do, they have to do it in the next two years just in case uh, you know you lose control of one of the one of the houses of Congress in in the midterms.
2: Well, they, you know, the short answer is nobody knows. I mean, the um, they did a remarkable job of holding together this you know, razor thin Democratic majority for this bill. Um, it's the, I would be tempted to say that, look, a lot of the things that we want to do, uh, repairing the country's infrastructure is enormously popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's something that, that, A huge majority of the public wants, Uh, but this the American Rescue uh, Plan was also enormously popular, and it still didn't get a single Republican vote. So, um, can we can clearly whatever happens, we'll again have to use reconciliation. Uh, There's no way you're going to get 60 senators for basically anything. In in this political environment, question is whether a few Republicans might join in, or alternatively, whether some uh, still deficit cautious Democrats might defect. Uh, It's going to it's going to depend a lot on the details. But my guess is that there will. I'm reasonably sure that there will be a significant public investment bill. coming up next. Uh, how big it will be, how adequate is what you'll have to do to get the more conservative end of the Democratic coalition on board is what's still up in the air.
0: Yeah, And how likely do you think this this momentum, I guess, uh, is to change the ground rules for the conversation? I mean, at some point doesn't there become a uh, uh, a real pressure on Republicans and conservatives from their constituents uh, to think differently or behave differently when it comes to these kind of things. I mean, can you win over enough uh, voters uh, to really change the conversation uh, about these things so that uh, we we don't just kind of seesaw back and forth when when one party's in charge, we do one thing when the other party gets gets control, we erase all of that and and- r- race in the opposite direction well
2: um that's a huge debate running among uh, political scientists right now mm-hmm. uh the We're an enormously polarized country uh so we have a situation right now in which something like seventy percent of the public um appeal or, uh, approves of of this bill that was just passed, and yet the betting is that the normal expectation is that the Democrats will lose control of Congress um, in in the next uh, in the midterm elections. Anyway, partly because of redistrict, redistricting and gerrymandering, and partly because um, people always tend to vote against whoever holds the White House. And that sounds crazy. The public basically really really likes Joe Biden's policies and is likely to strip him of any effective legislative power anyway um so we well maybe the rules have changed uh, we we really are in uncharted territory mm-hmm. we didn't uh we've been talking about growing polarization but uh no i don't even think that the most pessimistic people thought that we would have a large fraction of the party that lost the election believing that it was stolen right uh so this is um uh god knows i mean I, i'd like to think that all of the good stuff that will be happening over the next year will, in fact, in, among other things, induce a few uh, Republicans to in Congress to to change their minds. But they may figure that what matters for them is the is is the primaries, and they're more afraid of of a, a challenge from somebody, uh, some QAnon sympathizer, than they are of of general public opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think of the COVID relief bill, of this general approach to uh, getting the economy moving again after the disruptions of the pandemic. Uh, also, if you just have a question for uh, Paul Krugman, New York Times columnist and Nobel laureate, uh, Uh, He's here with us all hour. Again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there. We'll work into the conversation. Uh, Paul, I want to talk about this recent column you wrote about choice, which is something that uh, American capitalism prides itself on. But you say we might actually have too much choice for our own good. Uh, Explain to our listeners what you mean by that. Okay, so
2: we need to be it, it's not a general principle it's not that you know i'm i'm uh, happy enough to have a a choice of of different spaghetti sauces at, at the supermarket <laughs> uh so there, there's nothing um there's a lot to be said for choice but we have gotten an ideology which says that uh people should be given and in fact forced to make choices In areas which is where choice actually ends up being a burden rather than a than a help. So, the um, uh, you know my personal anecdote, I I've always had a the luxury of 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 jobs that came with good health insurance. Um, And I moved from I took early retirement from Princeton University, moved to City University of New York uh, and New York Times, and the New York Times has a union health plan. It's and it's the health plan. Um City so University of New York is actually owned by the state mm-hmm. and uh and the state offers you nineteen different health insurance plans. And I took a look at them and I figured, you know, I should be able to figure this out. I couldn't figure out the difference between them. Um so I went to HR and said, Can you explain to me the difference between these plans? And they said, No. Uh so <laughs> I went with the Times plan because this was an impossible burden. And the same is true with uh, retirement plans. Same is true, as, as we discovered in Texas. A lot of people the people were given a, a choice of electricity plans uh, without really you – know, who is competent to do that kind of analysis? Uh, most of us are not. And some of them found themselves with plans that ended up – they ended up with a $17,000 bill for a week of power because they had chosen the wrong plan. So we, we we're we placing – a lot of our, we have a kind of a free market ideology that says the choice is great, but doesn't recognize that people are human beings. Mm. Without, mm. We're not all supercomputers able to calculate everything, and uh, time is limited, we have families to raise, and you know, uh, lives to live. So that in some cases, simple simplicity, uh, not too much, F- fewer opportunities to screw up because Life is too complicated. Would be better for us.
0: And and you talk in the column about the consequences for this, particularly for those at the lower end of the economic scale. It's not just a matter of uh, inconvenience. Sometimes this this is this is what helps keep people poor. Correct.
2: Well, th- th- take the, the you know we had a terrible financial crisis. Uh, in uh, a dozen years ago, that, that was uh, a lot of it had to do with subprime mortgages, and which basically banks were offering, or well, banks and and other lending institutions were offering, complicated financing plans for houses instead of your standard mortgage. And at the time, a number of Economists, some people said, well, this is great. People are being offered more choice. But the fact of the matter is, those plans were very hard to understand. Mm. And the most complex, the most opaque plans were being offered to the people least able to make that determination. Lower income borrowers, first time uh, home buyers were being offered financing op- uh, options that looked, you know, that on their prospectus looked great, except people didn't understand the risks they were running. And so, in- in an important sense, an excessive ideology of choice helps set the stage for an enormous financial catastrophe.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we will continue our conversation with Paul Krugman of The New York Times. We'll also get to more of your calls. Jack in Ann Arbor, Ed in Detroit, we'll hear from you. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
1: WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET,
2: Detroit's NPR station.
0: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDT. with Steven Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Paul Krugman, New York Times op-ed columnist and Nobel laureate. We're talking about the COVID relief bill that passed uh, Congress last week and is putting money in people's pockets already. We're talking about uh, the immediate effect of it as well as the larger effect of that over time. We also were just discussing a column that uh, that Krugman wrote recently about choice uh, and whether we have maybe a little too much choice for our own good right now uh, in in this country, even though that is uh, a feature dynamic of uh, of the capitalist uh, economic system that we have. Uh, we want to hear from you this hour as well, 313 1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and uh, put comments there. Let's go to Jack in Ann Arbor. Jack, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I know this
1: is not has been taken out of the bill, but I'd love it if uh, Dr. Krugman would talk a minute about uh, the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep hearing that a $15 minimum wage will ruin... The job market and uh, having several family members in uh,
0: the restaurant business—it kind of worries me.
1: But I sure like for them to be able to make a living.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, great question, uh, Jack. Uh, uh, of course, this was this was the, the the main sticking point, it seemed, between the House and and the Senate uh, o- over this relief bill. Uh, Paul, what do you think of the idea of a fifteen dollar? An hour minimum wage. Yeah,
2: so I was really sad to see that not make it through. And of course, it was procedural. It wasn't uh, right. Uh, it was again they, these arcane rules. They, they, the Senate parliamentarian ruled that that this the reconciliation, which has to deal with fiscal matters, couldn't be applied to a change in minimum wage, and uh, and so they they couldn't do it um, without sixty. With, you know, without ten Republicans joining the Democrats, which wasn't going to happen. Um, the, I think the, on the minimum wage first. I think a, a kind of an important point. Uh, if you're in something like the restaurant business, and you say, uh, if I had to pay all my workers fifteen dollars an hour. I would be in trouble because I, I, how could I compete? But of course, a minimum wage increase means that all of your competitors also have to pay fifteen dollars an hour. So it's a it, that's not at all the same thing. And we need to look at what basically. This is a question you need to settle with evidence. And as it happens, we have lots and lots of evidence on on minimum wages because minimum wages. Uh, many, I think, most states have minimum wages that are above the federal level. And they changed them uh, from time to time, and they're, um, but not in a coordinated way. So the original, the famous study was, there was back in 1993, I think, New Jersey raised its minimum wage and Pennsylvania did not. And you could compare what happened to jobs on either side of the Delaware River. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that, um, although many people predicted, substantial loss of jobs in New Jersey didn't happen. And since then, there have been uh, hundreds of comparisons like that. And they all come down to the conclusion that any negative effects on employment from minimum wage hikes um, are uh, minimal. If, if, there, if there's anything at all, there's really just not much there. So that here we have really solid statistical evidence that says that this is not a problem uh, within the range we've seen. So a, a, obviously a $30 an hour minimum wage would be really, really problematic. Uh, Fifteen is probably okay. It's um, it, it would definitely raise a lot of people's incomes. It would definitely take a bite out of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, it would. Um, it's certainly no problem at all in high-wage, high-productivity states. New York, California, uh, Massachusetts can do fifteen-dollar minimum wages without without a problem. In fact, they uh, some of them are. Um, Uh, Even Florida uh, has passed a referendum to raise its wage to 15. Uh, A little more questioning, maybe, about some of the lower-income states. But on the whole, it looks like a really net positive. And I have to say just kind of professionally, it's, it's a shame to have something where you have a novel policy insight that comes out of really careful economic research, Mm -hmm. actually builds a significant political movement behind it, looks ready to happen, and then gets killed because of some arcane features of of parliamentary procedure. So come back to it, have a bill, at least force Republicans to vote against it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, the the thing that that for me um, is always in the background of this conversation is the change in... Uh, I guess workforce opportunity maybe would be the way to to, to to put it. You know, when the minimum wage was was created, uh, you know, the, the the thought was that you know young people and people in their first sort of work opportunities would earn that wage, and and it wasn't something that you would that you would expect people to live on. But of course, uh, you know you have so many people now who are are trapped in in jobs that uh, that that they don't have uh, skills to do something else, and, and they do have to live off of those jobs. And as long as that's true, uh, you know, even fifteen dollars really uh, it may be too low a, a floor. Unless we're willing to to change some other things, I think you've got to you've got to invest in the minimum wage
2: yeah the minimum wage I mean there are other things too. I mean we have something we have the earned income tax credit, which actually does a lot of good, sure. uh but that kind of complements the minimum wage. so a lot of people will um be earning minimum wage or a little bit above. One of the things about the minimum wage, is it doesn't—it doesn't just affect minimum wage workers. It's a, there's a kind of a ripple effect up the scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, jobs that pay a few dollars more than than the minimum wage will also end up paying more as a result of an increase. And yeah, we, we are not a society now in which. Well, the minimum wage is is irrelevant because, uh, or barely relevant, because it's only teenagers on summer jobs making it. This is an economy where we have a lot of people who are are, are poorly paid, and this is just one of a number of things we should be doing to try and
0: change that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, Jack, uh, appreciate the call and the question. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, uh, I've only got about a minute and a half left, but uh, Huey
1: Long used to say, Hmm. uh, "Every man a king." When I think of the IRA transition, it looks like some people are saying every man is stockbroker.
0: stockbroker.
1: Mm. Um, your guest's comments about choices hits home there. Most people really don't know enough to figure out the market. And when we had pension managers, they were professionals whose mm-hmm. job was to figure out the market. Mm-hmm. And we've dumped pensions for IRAs, and most people don't make very much money in their IRA. In fact, most people don't put very much into their IRA. Yeah. I'll listen to your guess.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did. there was a big shift away. Now, it was always the case that lots of people didn't actually have pensions. Um, and thank God for Social Security. Right. Uh, we, that it, it's, it's actually shocking when you look at the numbers, how many Americans... Uh, rely on Social Security. A majority rely on Social Security for the majority of their retirement income, and a lot of people rely on it for virtually all of it. Um, but the um, and on pen, uh, you know we, so, we, but we shifted away from company pensions. Now, uh, index funds, not stock picking. Uh, not one person in in ten, not, probably not one person in a hundred, really should be doing stock picking. Who knows? Uh, Even even professionals often screw up badly there. Um, But yeah, it's we shifted a lot of risk. Uh, There was this movement we were going to. You know, I don't know if people remember that George W. Bush was trying to privatize Social Security. But even then, at least they were smart enough to realize that giving people the ability to invest in individual stocks was going to be a disaster. So there were going to be a limited number of index funds that were available. Because we've seen what happens when you don't do that. We've seen that happen. in Britain had a retirement disaster under Margaret Thatcher mm-hmm. where people, uh, among other things, just squandered large amounts of their savings on brokerage fees. So, yeah, this is um, – the people – retirement is, is definitely one of those areas where people don't have the, the competence. I don't have the competence. I, I'm, I, don't, uh, I don't do a whole lot of stock picking, uh, basically almost none, because uh, uh, there's just too much involved. So, uh, no, this is definitely a case where, where choice is a big mistake.
0: Yeah. Okay. Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate and op-ed columnist for The New York Times. It was really wonderful to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining
2: us. Take care, then. Yeah.
0: I also want to thank Claire Brennan for her help in shaping today's show. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to talk about the significance of the Pope's visit to Iraq last week and what it means to the Chaldean community and other Christian Iraqis living right here in Metro Detroit.